0: Morning, again. How's everybody doing? All right, a few people are doing good. Everybody else, wake up. All right, we're here. So uh, a few months ago, uh, my son-in-law was looking for a job. He has uh, a master's degree in computer science, so there were plenty of opportunities. And there were many things for him to consider when applying uh, and responding to to job offers certainly salary was important you needed to make enough money to take care of my daughter and my future grandchildren key but there were other things to consider beyond salary Uh, vacations holidays retirement plan insurance we call this uh, the benefits package most jobs include a benefits package And I'm happy to say my son-in-law found a job in this area with a good salary and a good benefits package. But have you ever stopped to consider that when you, when we, by God's grace, this is what we've been talking about over these many weeks, when we, by God's grace, are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, that when we're saved, we also receive a benefits package. Now, many of us are aware of of two very important benefits of, of justification, of being saved. One, when we die, we don't go to hell. And two, when we die, we go to heaven. Pretty good benefits. But sadly, we're unaware of the many other benefits in our package. Benefits that we receive in this life. Benefits that we don't have to wait until our uh, final retirement party in the sky. Death to enjoy. And I think one of the reasons that we don't experience the blessings and the victory uh, in our Christian life, in this life, is because we're unaware of the benefits that we've been given, because we're unaware, or or because we don't fully understand the benefits. We don't experience or live in them. When I was in high school, I I worked at, many of you know this, uh, I worked at the Van Buren Drive-In. Now, the drive-in didn't have a great benefits package. No retirement, no insurance, no holidays, no vacation pay, but it did have other benefits. And before I was hired, I knew about most of these benefits, uh, that employees received free popcorn, free soda, and all the drive-in movies you could watch for free. But it wasn't until several months of working there that I discovered another benefit. We not only got free movies at the drive-in, we could also go to any movie in any theater in all of Riverside. And back in the day, there was the De Anza Theater, the Arlington Theater, the Magnolia Drive-In, the Canyon Crest Theater, there was a lot of theaters. There's probably more now, but whatever. They're all different. It's, you know, those are all gone. Uh, and so I took full advantage of that benefit. In high school, I didn't spend a lot of money on dates. Let's just put it that way. And my point is, it wasn't until I knew about the, these free movies that I fully experienced them, right? It's not until we know about our benefits that we fully benefit from them. Therefore, we need to understand... The benefits of our justification. And that's what Paul describes in the the beginning of chapter 5. We're going to only look at two verses today. This is part one of of the benefits of justification. Romans 5 begins uh, the third major section of Paul's letter. It follows section 1, which was what? Verses 118 to 320. Which shows humanity's unrighteousness, sinfulness. Really, it was showing our need for the gospel. And then, section 2, chapter 3, verse 21 to 425, that we finished last week, which shows the gospel itself uh, how unrighteous humans can be justified, can be saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Then, in section 3, which begins in chapter 5 and goes all the way. To the end of chapter 8, we find uh, mainly what we find in this section is a description of life after justification, life after salvation. Once you've given your life to Christ, this is what you can expect. This is what life should look like. You could title this third section, The Benefits of the Gospel. And Paul begins this third section by reminding us of what he's just shown us. In the second section, he says, therefore, so this is following from what we've just been seeing, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, that's the summary of the second section, we've been justified by faith, by God's grace, through faith, not in our works, not in ceremony, not in obedience to the law, but by faith, we're justified. Now, from this point forward in the letter, Paul's speaking Uh, addressing specifically those who've been justified by faith. The benefits we're going to look at today and in subsequent weeks are only for those who've been counted righteous by God. Those who've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. However, if you're here this morning and you haven't given your life to Christ, you haven't put your faith in, in Christ, This passage would also be of great interest to you because it gives you the benefits. This is the, the, the benefits of what happens when you give your life to Christ, when you're justified by faith. So Paul, in the first four chapters, showed the need for justification and then the way of justification. The need to be saved by grace through faith and then how to be saved by grace through faith. And now he turns his attention to what comes after Salvation? What comes after justification? What's next? Once we believe, once God counts us righteous, is that the end? Are we done? Is that all we have to think about? Do we just go on living as if nothing has taken place? Uh, no, because that would be crazy. It would be like someone who had been born blind and they're suddenly received their sight, refusing to open their eyes, refusing to live any differently than when they were blind, still relying on their cane and, and their seeing eye dog, when all they need to do is open their eyes and see. So today, I want us to open our eyes. I want us to see. I want us to see the awesome benefits that come to those who've been justified by faith. But more than to see them, I want us to be challenged by them. I want us to be motivated to live in them, to live based on the benefits we receive because of our justification. Because of what Christ has done for us. We receive benefits. And the first benefit Paul proclaims is that we have peace with God. Again, Romans 5.1, I'll start at the beginning. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In a world that that, it, that is that is now, currently, and has been throughout all recorded history, dominated by conflict and war, we, human beings, for the most part, we long for peace. When asked if you could wish for one thing in this this world, many people would say, world peace, just give me world peace. We desire peace in all areas of life, from peace between nations to peace between individuals in our relationships. However, the most fundamental, the basic, the bottom line kind of peace we need is peace with God. In fact, I think it's safe to say that humanity's, our lack of peace with God, is what causes us to not have peace with one another. So what does it mean that those who've been justified by faith now have peace with God? Well, I think the first thing it means is that those who've not been justified by faith do not have peace with God. You're either in one camp or the other. You've either been justified by faith, you're at peace with God, or not, and then you're not at peace with God. And that means, for us, before you or I, or if you're not yet, before we were justified by faith, we were not at peace with God. In fact, the Bible says we were God's enemies. Just a few verses down, same chapter, chapter 5, verse 10, for if, why, we were enemies, We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. It was when we were God's enemies that we were reconciled to Him. That that word reconciled means to return to with favor. To return to favor with. To come back into favor. To be brought back into relationship with. Because of our sin and our rebellion and our rejection of God, our relationship with God was broken. We became His enemies. But by the death of His Son, we can be, we were, reconciled, returned to favor with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When we put our faith in, in Christ, we are justified. That's, what, that's just a technical word. It means to be counted righteous. To have the righteousness of God counted towards you. You're no longer seen by God as sinful It's not that you don't sin anymore, it's that God reckons, He counts, He imputes, that old word, righteousness to you. And because we are counted righteous, we can be reconciled to God. We who God has justified, whose God has given His righteousness to, are now now able to enter into relationship with Him. We're now able to enter into His presence. We're returned to His favor. We're able to be at peace with God. Now generally speaking, when two parties who are not at peace, whether you're talking about two nations or you're talking about two people in a disagreement, in either case, the two parties to be reconciled, uh, to make peace, they must come together and hash out their differences. Talk it out. They must reach an agreement, some kind of uh, a peace treaty. Each side must give and take and compromise and sacrifice. And if the peace treaty is to be just, then certainly the one who causes the problem must be the one who sacrifices to restore the peace, right? We are God's enemies because of what we have done, because of our sin and our rebellion and our rejection of God. And therefore, justice demands that we sacrifice in order to be reconciled with God. Put simply, justice would say, We caused the war, therefore we have to pay for it. We have to pay for the peace. But there's a problem. The problem is we are unable and unwilling to do so. We're unable and unwilling to pay. We're unable and unwilling to make the sacrifices necessary to deal with our sin that separates us from God. We're unable because we've been totally corrupted by our sin. We're not in a position to be able to be reconciled to God. We are unable. Paul makes that clear. He made that clear in the first section of Romans, summarized by uh, verse 10. Both Jews and Greeks, all people, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. So first, we have no ability to make peace with God because we're under sin, because we're an unrighteous people. We have nothing to offer God to pay for our sin for our unrighteousness. We are the problem. Therefore, we can't be the solution. But it's even worse than that. Because we don't even want a solution. We don't even want peace with God. Romans 3, 11 and 12 makes that clear. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Even if we could make peace with God, we wouldn't do it Because we don't want peace in our lives. We don't want God in our life. We don't seek Him. We don't want a good God in control of our lives because we we don't want to do good. We don't want to forsake our sin. We like it. Therefore, we have no ability or desire to have peace with God. And so God, who who would be totally just, this would be justice if He would allow us his enemies, to remain in rebellion against him. Rebellion that would result in our eternal destruction at at the hands of a righteous and holy God. But, praise the Lord, that's not where God chooses to leave us. Thanks be to God, who is not only just, but is also merciful and loving. Paul said earlier, "He's He's just, and He's the justifier. And therefore God, in a great act of love and mercy, sent His one and only Son to die for our sins. For the sins of His enemies. That we might be reconciled. Return to His favor. We are reconciled to God not by anything we could or would have done. We are reconciled to God by the death of His Son. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The death of and then the resurrection of Jesus makes, just, makes, uh, makes justification and therefore peace with God possible for those who put their faith in Him. And so the question then becomes, for those who have been justified by faith, to those who have been reconciled to God through Christ, to those who have peace with God because of the death of Christ, do you, do I live in the peace provided by Jesus Christ? Or do you still live like that blind man who refuses to open his eyes? Do you still live as if you're in some way God's enemy? When two countries make peace, it often means that they sign a treaty and then go their separate ways, right? Peace basically means they no longer shoot at each other. But that's not the picture the Bible gives us of peace with God. Peace with God is is better pictured by peace uh, between uh, family members, maybe a husband and wife. When my wife and I are at war, maybe a little overstated, when we're not getting along, and, and finally we admit our mutual wrongdoings, mostly mine, right? Peace means we come together. We hug and we say we're sorry. We ask for and we receive forgiveness from one another. We are then reconciled. We return to one another's favor. We enter into relationship again. Now that is what peace with God looks like, with one major exception. When we come together with God, we're the only ones saying we're sorry. We're the ones who rebelled against. We're the ones who rejected God. Therefore, we are the ones who need to repent. God is the one who made peace possible through Jesus Christ. God is the only one who can grant forgiveness of sins. And God is the one who writes the peace treaty. God's terms of peace certainly involve us confessing and repenting of our sins. Asking and receiving forgiveness based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. But God's peace treaty also involves our total, absolute, unconditional surrender to Him. Being at peace with God means being reconciled into relationship with Him. But our relationship with God is one where He's King. He's the Lord. He's the Master. He's the Ruler, not only of the earth, of the heavens and the earth, but of your life and mine. Having peace with God means you unconditionally surrender your life to Him. Ah, God, I'll I'll do what you say as long as you stay out of this area. I want to keep this area of my life. Well, you haven't surrendered. You haven't made peace. It's unconditional surrender is what God demands. That you're no longer your own, Paul says, that you're bought with a price. The price paid by Christ on the cross. He paid for your sin and He bought your life. In Luke chapter 11, verse 23, Jesus uh, briefly describes God's terms of peace this way He says, Whoever is not with me is against me. Being at peace with God means being with Him, being for Him, living for Him, living for His goals, living for His purposes. I remember the first time I, I heard these words uh, spoken by Christ, recorded by Luke. Chapter 11, verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me. It was during a Sunday morning church service. I was 13 years old, and even though I would have never thought in my wildest dreams that I'm against God, that I'm against Jesus, I would have never considered myself an enemy of God, I knew that, I knew that even at age 13, I wasn't with him. I wasn't for him. That I wasn't living for him. That he wasn't my ally. He wasn't my Lord. So that morning, sitting in a church pew, I decided I'll be fully His. I'll be with Him. I would surrender my life to Him as my Lord and my Savior. And this is how I and anyone else receives peace with God. And so today, if you're not with Jesus, if you've not surrendered your life to Him, then, first, know you have no peace with God. You are God's enemy. And I would encourage you to consider accepting the peace treaty, the peace, uh, the olive branch that God is extending to you. I would call you to put your faith in and give your life to Jesus Christ. To say, Jesus, I, I don't want to be against you. You're the creator of, of all things, you're my Lord. I don't want to be against you. I don't don't want to be your enemy. I want to be with you now and and throughout all eternity. I I surrender my life to you. I want you to be my Savior and my Lord. And if you do that now, or if you've done that at some time in the past, then then you've been counted righteous by God. God, when you do that, when you trust in Christ, He imputes, He gives you His righteousness. We call that, and then you're justified. You're, You're right with God. And therefore, you're reconciled. You have returned to favor with God by the death of His Son. You have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is oh so amazing, to be at peace with God. But that's only the beginning. For those those of us who've been justified by faith, we not only have peace with God, but we stand in God's grace. It's our second point this morning. We stand in God's grace. Romans 5.2 begins, Through Him, through Jesus Christ, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. By putting our faith in Jesus, we are justified and reconciled. We have peace with God. And on top of that, Jesus then gives us access into God's grace. Now, I believe a better translation for that word access is the word introduction. That's how the NASB, uh, the New American Standard Bible, translates it. Access implies that, that we have the opportunity. Access only implies the opportunity to stand before God, to enter into God's grace, that it's up to us whether we enter God's grace or not. But introduction means that Jesus has introduced us to God's grace, that Jesus has taken us by the hand and he's led us into a place where we can stand in the grace of God. And I think that gives us a much better picture, a better understanding of what takes place when we're justified. Because when we put our faith in Christ, a door that was previously closed to us opens up. And on the other side of that door, we find something that we didn't have prior to our justification we find this grace in which we stand and it's through christ that we're introduced that we enter into that door that we that we now live on the other side in grace now what does paul mean by this grace in which we stand usually when we talk about grace we're talking about uh the grace that we receive at at or prior to our salvation for by grace You've been saved, right? This grace is defined as God's unmerited favor. Uh, His undeserved, unsolicited, unconditional love for us. It's a gift from God that cannot be earned. It's grace. You did nothing for it and God just chose to give it to you. And yes, we are saved. We're justified by the grace of God. But what we need to understand, what we fail to understand often, is that after salvation, after we've been justified by faith, after we've been reconciled and, and come into peace with God, we continue to live or stand in God's grace. It's not that we only need God's grace for this one act, for this one justifying act. We, it's not that we only need God's unmerited, undeserved, unconditional love once. We need and have it on a continual basis. We need and have it in to live this life. We continually need. And we have God's unmerited favor, His undeserved, unsolicited, and unconditional love. When we are justified, we not only have peace with God, but we enter into God's presence. We go into a, a place, if you will, that's in the presence of God. And in His presence, His grace surrounds us. It enfolds us and it impacts our lives. His grace picks us up when we fall. His grace gives us strength when we're weak. And His grace is always available. It's not that, that we can come to Him once a day or in times of trouble. It's not that we, we're given an occasional audience with the King It's that we're now privileged to live in the king's palace, to continually dwell in his perfect presence and grace. By his grace, our relationship with God is not only on, we not only have a relationship with God, but it it continues, the grace continues. By his grace, our relationship with God is not uncertain, but it's secure, we do not fall in and out of favor with God because His grace is always there to pick us up. We stand in His grace. In Romans chapter 8, verse 38, 39, sort of the end of this section, we're starting at the beginning in chapter uh, 5, verse 1. Paul ends the same section uh, this way. This is the reality of standing in God's grace. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's something to think about over and over again. Because we, the justified, uh, we live, we stand in God's grace. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the question is: Do you live? Do you live in the reality of the grace in which you stand? When you fall, when you fail, when you sin, when life is difficult, when you face death and disease and destruction, when your enemies press in with lies, discouragement. Do you know that you, because of Jesus Christ, stand in God's grace? That the grace of God is surrounding you. That God is there. That God is waiting and wanting to forgive you from your sin. He's waiting and wanting for you to experience His love and grace. I I remember life, my life, before I understood the truth of God's continual love and grace for me. It was not... Uh, the victorious Christian life. Because when I sinned, uh, when I failed, when life was tough, I believed that God was rejecting me. That God had removed His grace and love for me. That God was punishing me. And so, like, like my father Adam, you remember Adam? Uh, when he sinned, what did he do? He ran and hid. And so that's what I did. I ran and hid from God, and I continued in my sin. I continued to live as this blind man with my eyes shut to the grace of God until God would hunt me down, and He would, maybe when I got to the bottom, He would hunt me down and draw me back into a relationship with Him. This made for this up and down, uh, roller coaster existence, roller coaster relationship with God. But once I understood this truth, that I stand in the grace of God. Things changed. Now when I sin, and, and yes, I still sin. Most likely daily. Maybe hourly. Maybe minutely. I don't know. I still sin. But instead of running from God, hiding from God, I quickly run to God. I quickly repent knowing that God is waiting. And God is wanting me to come to Him to receive His loving grace and mercy and forgiveness. I no longer live in fear of God rejecting me, but in the security of my relationship with Him. A relationship of of peace, of love, and of continual, lasting grace. And if that's the kind of relationship with God that you desire, then I would encourage you to, to live knowing that God's grace is continually available to you. That God is always, even when you sin, waiting he's he's counted you righteous don't forget that that's the whole point that's the whole point of grace if 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 we're if we're saying god can't have grace for this then he ha- can't have grace for anything even when you sin god is waiting and wanting you to come to him and receive his grace and his love and his mercy and his forgiveness and therefore you know what this eliminates the need to run from him the need to hide from him which is, by the way, stupid in the first place. Just saying. And that takes us to our third and final point. Because when we really believe the truths that we have, we're at peace with God. Just, I mean, it's the, it's the, a declaration. You have peace with God. When we really believe we stand in God's grace, then I believe we rejoice in God's glory. We become a people that rejoices in the glory of God. That's what uh, the end of Romans 5.2 says. We stand in God's grace and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We get joy. We get joy in the glory of God. For those who've been justified by faith or at peace with God, we stand in grace. We have great joy available to us. We can rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And biblical hope, and we've talked about this before, but we need to mention it again, is not uh, this uncertain, wishful thinking. It's not hoping that the Cowboys win their game today. Right? That's not not what it means. Although, I do hope the Cowboys win their game. It's a joyful and confident expectation which rests on the promise of God. We have no promise from God that any football team is going to win or lose today. We can't hope in those things like the Bible says. We saw this in the life of Abraham. Remember Abraham, chapter 4, verse 18? It says, in hope he believed against hope. In hope, so he had this surety of hope, but he was believing against hope. Because he was, remember, he was 99 years old and his wife was barren. So naturally speaking, there was no hope, but he had hope. That he would become the father of many nations. Based on what? Based on the promises of God. God had promised Abraham. And so he had a sure hope that he would become the father of many nations. Even though, from the world's perspective, it looked impossible. Now for us, Paul says, we have a much greater hope. In fact, our hope is, far, is by the, the greatest outcome possible. Our hope is in the glory of God. Our hope is that our God, the Creator and Savior and Sovereign, Holy, Just, All-Powerful, All-Knowing, Ever-Present, Ruler of all things, our hope is that He will be glorified. That God's glory, His awesomeness, His beauty and majesty, His righteous character will one day be on full display Now currently, God's glory is being continuously revealed. It's being revealed in the heavens and in the earth. Uh, Psalm 8, David declares, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You have set Your glory above the heavens. We see the glory of God in what He does in the heavens and the earth, in His creation, in His miracles, in His ability to transform lives. In those things and others, God is glorified. And God's glory was uniquely revealed in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Apostle John writes in his, in his preamble, his, his preface to his Gospel, he's speaking of the whole life of Jesus. He said, and the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of only the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So God's glory is, has been and is being revealed in part. This we, we don't need to hope for this. This has happened and is, is currently happened. It's a present reality. We see the glory of God. But as we know, there are those who don't believe. Who don't acknowledge. Who don't see the glory of God. And that matters. Instead, they deny God's glory. They deny God's glory revealed in His creation. They deny God's glory revealed in Christ. They deny who God is and what God has done. Many even deny that He exists at all. And this is a, the greatest of injustices. To deny the very One who created you and the One who provided your salvation through the death of His Son. To deny Him. To deny His glory. But we who've been justified rejoice in the hope that one day the curtain will be opened And the glory of God will be fully seen by all. The Scripture tells us that that day will come. And on that day, Jesus Christ Himself will appear. Mark 13.26, Jesus speaking of the last day says, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. In Matthew, Jesus identifies the the they in, in that passage. The they is all peoples of the earth. There's coming a day when all people will see the Son of Man we'll see Jesus Christ coming in the clouds with great glory and power. We can rejoice in the hope that God's glory will be revealed to all peoples. But that's not the end of our hope. For those who've been justified by faith will not only see His glory, but we will be, He will be glorified in us. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica when He comes on that day to be glorified in us. In his saints, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. When Christ comes, he'll not only fully reveal his glory, but he'll transform his saints, those who've been justified by faith, so that, so that we will fully glorify him. We will marvel at his glory revealed in us. We who've been justified by faith, who were created uh, to be in the image and the glory of God, but because of our sin, as Romans 3.23 says, we currently fall short of God's glory. But on that day, we'll be changed so that, so that we both reflect in, reflect, and we share in. And, and it's mysterious to me. I can't totally explain what it means that we'll share in the glory of God. just have to trust That's what Paul says in Romans 8.17. Now if we are children, if if we've trusted in God, if we've made that peace treaty, if we've unconditionally surrendered to Him, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We're going to receive benefits from God if indeed we share in His suffering in order that we may also share in His glory. So next week we'll have more on this transformation that takes place through suffering. But for now... See that our hope is, our hope is in the day when God's glory will be fully revealed to all people, and and we will be transformed to both reflect His glory and to share in His glory. And so, the final question for us today is this: What are what are you longing for? What are you looking forward to? Because because uh, the glory of God, you know. Are you looking? That's I think if you're looking forward to the glory of God, that puts you in that camp of God's uh, allies, and if you're not looking forward to the glory of God, you have to say, What am I looking forward to? What brings me joy? Do I rejoice in hope of the glory of God? When you think of the future, do you dwell on the things of this world, Uh, promotions and pay raises, vacations and retirement? And when you think beyond this world to eternity, do you focus? Even when you think about eternity, are you thinking of yourself? You dwell on how awesome heaven is going to be for me. No tears, no pain, no sorrow. Walking the streets of gold. Seeing those who've gone before us, all good things. Is that what we dwell on? Or when you think of the future, do your thoughts, your hopes, turn to God's glory being fully revealed? Because that's what the future is going to be be all about that's what the future will bring and so if if that's what uh so if that's not what you're hoping for then 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 i have sad news you're going to be very disappointed by heaven you're going to be very disappointed by the future for there will come a day when god's glory will be fully revealed to all and for those who've been justified by faith that day will last throughout all eternity Throughout all eternity, we who are saved by grace through faith will worship and honor and glorify the one who saved us. We will throughout eternity in the power of the Spirit glorify God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, who brought us peace with God and introduced us to the grace in which we stand. And so I'd encourage you in this life today, I mean, that's the future part of it, that's the, the, the present part of it is, are you rejoicing in what's coming in the future? Are you hoping for what's coming in the future? The future's a done deal, by the way, from God's perspective. So you might as well get on board with it, okay? You might as well rejoice and hope for what's going to happen. And I just want to leave you with uh, three ways to cultivate your love and your joy for God's glory. Just, we're done. Just really quick. You can write these three words down. They all start with S. First, and this is to help us in the present cultivate what we should be living for. Maybe, maybe the means to help us transform our hearts so that we're hoping for and rejoicing in the glory of God. First, see. See his glory. See his glory in his word. Read God's Word and see His glory and and how He created. And and see His glory in the world. See His glory by looking at creation. See His glory in the lives of the people He's transformed. So first, see. See who He is and what He's done for you and for this world. Second, share. Share. Share His glory. This is our mission, right? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Share His glory. Share who He is and what He's done with others. That's glorifying God. When you tell others of who He is and what He's done, share His glory, especially with those who've yet to believe. And finally, sing to His glory. In this life, we're going to do this in just a second. Worship and honor and praise God. Praise him for who he is. Praise him for what he's done. Praise him that he's given you peace with him. Praise you that you're reconciled. Praise him that he's reconciled you to him. That it's all him and none of us. Share his glory, sing of his glory. See his glory that you might experience. I think as we do these things that you might experience the benefits of truly rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I pray for us. I pray for myself. I pray that, that Lord, our number one priority in life would be to to glorify and honor Your name. Lord, that our our passion would be for Your glory. That we would want the glory of the One who, who, who looked down upon us, who saw enemies rebelling, rejecting, running from Him. And he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to send my son. I'm going to allow my son to die for my enemies. And I'm going to have peace with them. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to introduce them. I'm going to bring them into my grace and let them stand there and live this life in that grace. Lord, help us to know those things. And help us to, to then uh, rejoice in the hope that one day you'll be glorified and honored throughout all eternity. In Christ's name, Amen.